Almighty God, Father and Maker of heaven and earth, you decreed in yourself from all eternity by your most wise and holy counsel of your will all things freely, unchangeably, whatsoever comes to pass. Praise your good and wise and strong hand. Blessed indeed be your name. As we gather this morning to submit our wills and our thinking to your word, may we come with humble and ready hearts. Grant your spirit, I pray, to quicken and to stir us toward faith in Christ, repentance of sin, hope in heaven, a love for the saints. Reveal the ways, Lord, that we so often attempt to maneuver and make straight what you have made crooked. Convince us of our foolish strategies to order our own lives in such a way as to pursue what we often assume as good and to avoid those things that we're convinced should not be in our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your righteousness. For every attempt toward our own righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags, an unworthy effort to place before you something that is despicable, unworthy, dishonorable. Bless us this morning, Lord, by convincing us again that our only hope, our only wisdom, our only joy and peace can come only through resting in Christ, his person and his work. Accomplish these eternal things now, Lord Jesus, this morning. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to, give, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. We'll keep you placed there to Exodus, or excuse me, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15. The world around us is perplexing. We often try to get our hands around it, and many of us have attempted to figure things out. But more times than often, it is difficult to discern. We know that there are babies in the children's hospital downtown that are suffering immensely. And we also know that there are narcissistic teenagers that are living in nothing but comfort and ease. Why does that happen? We know as well as we've lived in the world that there are and there has been the single parent mom driving home late at night from work a long day to take care for her children only to be killed by a drunk driver that walks away from the accident. We know of missionaries that are struggling overseas to make ends meet, to feed their family. While there are those here even in Jacksonville that live in luxury, burning through their money for their, own, for their own kingdom, for their own ways, their own will. You and I both look at these things and we're puzzled by them. Some of us have resorted to ignoring these things, uh, saying th th those things are things I can't think about, I can't wrap my head around, I can't understand. And so the, the obvious injustices simply cause you to check out. I'm not, I'm not going to consider those things. Others of us maneuver and manage our lives so that we can 
convince ourselves that if we do enough right things, if we make enough right choices, then these things can't and will not happen to us. There's others of us who need to take the time, even this morning, to do what the preacher, the one who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon himself, he's calling us this morning to reflect on these things. He's wanting us to consider these difficulties, these perplexities in our lives. He's wanting us to think through these things so that we can understand and be more convinced in our walking by faith in Christ. And so these questions that Solomon attempts for us to consider this morning in our text here in chapter 7 are questions that bring sorrow and struggle to our hearts. But as we reflect on these, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 15 through 24 this morning. As we reflect on these, my my prayer is that the Lord will allow us to consider His providence. But as He does, and as we look at the world and its crookedness, if you will, that we will become more and more convinced that we are not called to make it straight. We're simply called to be faithful to the God who is ordering and orchestrating all things together for for our good and His glory. So this morning, we're going to turn and reflect on some passages that the that the preacher wants us to consider, but also this morning our God has brought you here in the hearing of this text so that you can consider these things as well. Here's the the question that the the preacher, Solomon himself, in the book of Ecclesiastes is asking. It's one that we've heard before. It's one that we may have even asked before. And it is this, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Why do the wicked seem to prosper? while the righteous seem to struggle so hard? This morning, we're going to give ourselves to these difficult questions. And we're going to look at our passage this morning, verses 15 through 24, in two points. Notice with me, as we look at this passage, we're going to consider it in two different categories, two different points, if you will. Verses 15 through 18 is point number one. The perplexity of life. The perplexity of life. Point number one, verses 15 through 18. Point number two, the problem with wisdom. The problem with wisdom. This is verses 19 through 24. Verses 19 through 24. The perplexity of life, verses 15 through 18. The problem with wisdom, verses 19 through 24. Because these things often are so very confusing, and as we walk through this passage together this morning, um, I'm going to do something that I don't do as often Um, But, Lord willing, it will be helpful for all of us. And that is, I'm going to ask us to turn to different passages in our Bible uh, so that our our hearts will be rooted in God's Word. So that as we reflect on these things, and Lord willing, take this not only into the rest of the day, but into the rest of the week, you'll have other passages that you can note and consider and reflect on and consider these questions in light of God's Word throughout the week and not only this morning. So let's look together at point number one, verses 15 through 18. The perplexity of life. And let's look together at this perplexing, if you will, enigma, this this puzzling experience that Solomon is wrestling with this morning in verse 15. He states it pretty clearly. He says here in verse 15 of chapter 7, he says, In my vain life, in my vapor smoke-like life, this this life that is here for a moment and then gone instantly. It's just a, a puff of air, he says. That's what he's speaking of here. He's not speaking of the emptiness of his life. He's simply speaking of the brevity of it. He says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. 
And as he's looked out over all things and he's with his wisdom considered and observed all of life, he says, I've seen everything. And let me share with you something that's very perplexing to me, something that's puzzling and troubling to me that I want to share. Verse 15. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. I hope you hear the frustration. I hope you understand that here he's demonstrating that our lives are so short, it seems that they would be, they would be uh, um, laser-like in their rightness and correctness. And yet, he says, in our vapor, smoke, transient kind of lives... Even in the short stint of period that he's able to observe everything, he's saying, I'm seeing injustice before my eyes. He's concerned. He's confronted. We are confronted. We should not be okay with this. And we know it's true. God has placed each of us in a world that's dangerous and crooked. Why? Why does this happen? Why is there such injustice? And though we would like for it to be different, brothers and sisters, each and every one of us woke up this morning trying desperately all during the week to make our lives a little less crooked, a little more right and peaceful and just. And yet this morning, though we want it to be different, we woke up this morning and we're not able to change this verse. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. If there is then no avoiding this sorrow and this struggle, how then are we to bear under it? How are we to cope with these things? How are we to deal with this perplexing truth? How are we to face these constant injustices? The truth of 15 confronts us this morning, but it's not a truth that's only confronted us. We may think that the world is so sideways and messed up that our generation is is unique in the sense that we look over all the things and there's just so many things that are hard and difficult. Prosperity of the wicked. The needless and sometimes unable to understand the death of the righteous. This is disturbing. This is disturbing. Turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Psalm 73. Make a left-hand turn. Go back a handful of pages. Psalm 73. If you're using the blue Bible that we provide for you, this is on page 574 in that blue Bible. Psalm 73. The psalmist here also is confronted with the prosperity of the wicked. And it says here that he's, he's struggling with this. Notice, if you will, with me in Psalm 73, verse 2, the psalmist here says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. What in the world's making his feet almost stumble? My steps had nearly slipped. What is it that's causing him to be so jarred in his life? Listen to what he says, verse 3. For I was envious. He was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is a man of God who's writing the psalm. And he's saying, when I look out across the world and I see the prosperity of the wicked, it makes me want what they have. 
And he's a righteous man. And he says, I don't have what they have. I don't, I don't receive what seems to be the benefits that they receive. Notice verse 4 of 73. It says, For they have no pangs unto death. They seem to be living fancy free, happy and joyful. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them in garments. Their eyes are swell out through, through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. They set their mouths against the heavens, verse 9, and their tongue struts through the earth. They're pompous. Therefore, his people turn back to them. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have stricken and been rebuked every morning. I've lived a righteous life and it has done nothing but kept me under a harsh thumb. Verse 10, the middle of this psalm. Verse 10 is the very middle of the psalm. But when I thought how to understand these things, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to, me, me to be a wearisome task. In other words, he's saying it's just overwhelming to think about how the wicked prosper in just every single aspect. Verse 17 then. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. You see, my point, brothers and sisters, is this, and we'll return to the psalm at the end of the sermon. This is not a new thing. This is not new to God's people. This is not new to you. Your heart, too, even as one who desires to follow after Christ, looks at the world and the things of the world, you see the prosperity of the wicked, and your heart's drawn to it because you think they're winning and we're losing. They have the goods, they're being blessed. They're being encouraged. They live life casual and careless. There is no hardship and struggle. This is perplexing to us. This is a problem for Solomon as he is declaring this problem, as he, in his vain, vapor-like life, looks over everything and he says, the righteous man perishes. How? In his righteousness. And the, and the wicked man what happens to him? He prolongs his life. How? In his evil doing. We are not okay with this. We do not like this at all. So, these injustices swell up in our hearts and we set our course to live in such a way to ensure ourselves that these injustices will not happen to us. I know many of you have come here this morning and there are things that are wrong. There are things that are really, really crooked and broken. I'm using that word crooked because of verse 13 of chapter 7. For those who missed last week's, last Lord's Day's sermon, in verse 13 of chapter 7 it says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? This is not speaking of evil or sin. This is talking about just the, 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 the difficulties and sorrows and struggles that are in our lives that the Lord himself has his hand on. Many of us come here this morning and our lives are broken and struggling and difficult. And everything in you, because of, because of our own hearts, because of our, our, our innate desire to want to fix and make things right, 
And also, I believe it's also infiltrated with this philosophy. As an American, we're told that we can pull ourselves up and make things right. We just have to work hard at it and do, be more diligent, and we can make it work. But brothers and sisters, you come here this morning, many of you, and you've, you've pulled every lever. You've pressed every button to make things right and good, to make the crooked straight. And you have declared in your heart, who can make straight what God has made crooked? You're here this morning, and there's brokenness. There's difficulty, there's sorrow, there's pain. And for some of you this morning, it is because, it isn't just because, it's because you're trying to live before the face of God righteously. Bad things happen to bad people. You see, this is Job's friend's philosophy. Remember Job's friend's? Job's friend said, hey, you lost everything. And so this is what's hardwired in many of us. Just like Job's friends, we would say, you lost everything, so therefore, Job, you're not righteous. You've done something wrong. God is punishing you. That's why hardship and difficulty and struggle is happening to you, Job. And so each and every one of us thinks that if there's hardship, if there's struggle, if there's crookedness in our lives, if there's difficulty then we must remove this. God wants us to remove this now. And we need to do whatever it takes to make it happen. Many of us are frustrated because we're in this crooked world. We're in our crooked lives. We have the different things that are in our life and the sorrows and the brokenness that are there. And we desperately cried out to the Lord and he's been silent. If we can only fix our devotion... Maybe it's because I haven't been righteous enough. Maybe, maybe I need to set my course to be more faithful. And as I'm more faithful and more diligent and more strict and more disciplined in my life, the Lord then has to bless me. That, that must be what's wrong with my life. Listen then to what Solomon says that people try to do in order to fix the perplexity and the brokenness of this puzzle that's in verse 17. Listen to how people try to fix this problem. Listen to how you and I so often set ourselves to fix the, problem, the problems of injustice that are, that are in our own hearts and lives. Verse 16, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Verse 17, be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, this should sound odd to us. Is the Lord telling us that uh, we should live a little less righteously and things will work out? Not at all. Instead, the point here is, <clears throat> is connected to this difficulty in verse 15. And when one is confronted with these injustices... We're apt to give our lives to fix or to make straight that which God has made crooked. And we begin to give ourselves to a strict, devoted, disciplined life. And in so doing, if we can be more righteous than those people that are sitting around you, then God will be obligated to bless me and to give the punishment and the hardship and the difficulty to those guys that are around me that are less righteous. You see, what this is speaking of isn't simply just righteousness that's from God. This is speaking of self-righteousness. Do not be overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. The point here is he's saying, 
Do not set your course to say, the difficulties and the struggles in my life can be fixed if I simply give myself to a more strict, devoted, disciplined life. I can make myself more righteous than those who are around me. And I can live in such a way that God is obligated then to bless me and not and to remove some of these difficulties and struggles that are in my life. Reading our Bible. Earnest prayer. These are some of the ways that we give ourselves to the Lord when hardship and difficulty are in our lives. And we feel like, you know what, God really needs to show up here and do something for me. So I'm going to do my part. He needs to do his part. When we say that out loud, even though we, we, we do that in our hearts, when we say that out loud, we realize that's just not right. That's not faithful. Some of us think if we could, if we could somehow nail the door shut and put boards over the windows and keep our, our families out of this world, then we won't feel the effects and the hardships that this world has to offer. Have you known a family to circle the wagons? Moved out in the middle of nowhere? Had their kids and their, their family and they, 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 they do everything away from everybody because that's where the sin is out there, only to find out that, that, that they took the sin with them because their sinful hearts are the problem, not the world around them. I've known people who have come to Christ, who have come to Christ and been very devoted to the Lord. They have set themselves on the course of Bible reading and prayer, scripture memory, being at church every time the door is open. You begin talking to them, you realize even in their speech, they, they don't say it outright, but they say it kind of in a side way. They say, you know, I'm, I'm going after Jesus with all my heart, and I'm going to cross the finish line and get to heaven before everybody else. And these people that are in this church, they're just holding me back. They're just keeping me from being as righteous as I, as I need to be. A lot of times that comes out of a person who's lived a very sinful, wicked life, and they think they have to make up for it now that they're saved. Brothers and sisters, our passage here this morning is saying, do not be overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? The point is this, is that there's nothing you can do that will overcome the wickedness of this world, the brokenness that's in your life. It may be that the Lord does not want to remove that struggle and that difficulty in your life. It may be that the Lord has placed that thorn in your flesh so that you will simply be leaning on him. You know, faithfulness doesn't mean that the Lord has removed that thing from your life. Faithfulness means that you're continuing to come back to the Lord even though that thing is continuing in your life. Turn with me, if you will, and let's see this, this overly righteous lifestyle that Jesus himself condemned. Turn with me to Matthew 23. Matthew chapter 23. This is page 984 in the Bibles, the Pew Bibles, or the Chair Bibles. Page 980, no, it's called 984, 984. And this is uh, Matthew 23, chapter 23. Jesus gives a scathing rebuke to none other than the Pharisees. The Pharisees who were righteous in their own eyes, they were what I would call overly righteous. They were convinced that they were better than everybody around them. And they lived pure lives. Recognized by all to be good and moral and upstanding. Chapter 23 of Matthew, verse 13 says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven, you shut, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. 
Verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, he is bound by the oath. Verse 23, Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is Jesus speaking to them, rebuking them. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed, self-indulgence. Verse 27, look with me. Chapter 23 of Matthew, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous, how? To others. But within, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I want to assure you that there is a way to love righteousness, I'm putting that in quotes, in righteousness in such a way that you have little to no regard for the Lord. There's a way for you and I to love righteousness, a righteousness of our own making that has nothing to do with loving or pleasing the Lord. This is the kind of righteousness that the Solomon is warning about. A righteousness that is seeking to, one, be above others. A righteousness that is showy. It's a righteousness that appears to others as being good and right. And yet, in your heart, you are wanting something from God. You're wanting Him to remove this or to eliminate that. You're not seeing that it is the Lord Himself that is your greatest good. It goes on and says, do not be overly righteous. It goes on and says, do not make yourself too wise. In other words, don't give yourself to constantly trying to say, okay, if I can just get this new book, if I can just read this next article, if there, there's got to be something. If somebody can just sit down with me and talk with me about how to handle this particular issue, there's such a, such a difficult struggle in my life. If they can just tell me this, then the, the latch would flip and everything would be good. Brothers and sisters, most of you have lives that are not that easy. Our lives are not that simple. Much of it is, yes, it's hard. Let's go to the Lord together and ask Him to sustain us another day. That's the kind of wisdom we need. Not a wisdom from this world. Well, if we're not to be overly righteous, then I guess the best thing to do then is to go the other direction. We see here this warning this morning on the other side in verse 17 where it says, Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. So what he's saying here, do you think what he's saying here is, you know, you can be wicked, but just don't get carried away with it. You think that's what he's saying? It's contrary to everything in the Bible. This is not saying that we can, we can be wicked as long as we don't let it kind of control us or, or get out of hand. That's not what it's saying. The point here is very clear as we look at this in the context. It is saying that our hearts are already prone to wickedness. We're already bent in that direction. We know our hearts. We know given 
just a hint of opportunity, we'll pursue that which is not godly and righteous. We will pursue that which is not the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his blessings that he provides. We're already, we already have enough sin around us to condemn us and to flay our consciences every moment of every day of our lives. We know that. Instead, this verse exposes our hearts. When we become weary in the fight, the world and the things around us are so broken and so crooked, there's so, such injustice, there's such difficulty that we say to ourselves, I'm going to allow a little sin to relieve the sorrow. I'm going to let my heart be drawn to this thing right here because it's a pleasurable thing and I can't find pleasure anywhere else so I'm going to find pleasure here and I'm going to allow that to happen. This is absolutely contrary to what the scriptures clearly teach us that we are to at the very presence of any sin in our lives. Here's the word that the scriptures use. We're to mortify it. We're to choke it out. At first glance, at first sight of any sin, we're to be fervent to go after it and to kill it and to make sure it's dead. Brothers and sisters, we are not to allow sin to become familiar in our lives. No matter how hard or difficult your lives may be, no matter how extremely difficult things are, you say, you know what, the, Lord, the Lord's been just packing this stuff on me and it's hard and it won't go away and it's, and it's just difficult. I, I need a little relief and so I'm going to allow myself to not pursue, not be diligent, not be fervent to go after Christ. I'm going to allow the world to tantalize me, to, to, to relieve the, the sorrow a little bit, to give me some relief. When we say to ourselves, maybe I can live for Christ, but not as fervently and diligently as I'm hearing those other Christians at church are doing. I mean, really, does it, does it really matter? I mean, all this doctrine and all this talking about God and talking about Jesus and trying to understand these things. I mean, is that, does that really matter? I mean, I just want to love Jesus. Can I be less diligent? Can I be like this casual Christian that affirms my faith when it's appropriate and when the co-workers aren't around and when it's easy? I mean, Jesus knows I love him. I just can't, I can't bring it into every area of my life, every sphere can't be devoted like that. It's saying here that when difficulties and perplexities, when struggles come to our life, we are so apt to back up, to throttle back, to say, you know what, um, I'm, I'm going to live a little less diligently. And you and I know how to do that without anybody else around you knowing it, especially here in the church. But before too long, what you'll end up doing is you'll find a group of people that doesn't don't call you out on that. That doesn't say, are you, are you pursuing Christ like you should? What's, what's your time with the Lord? Are you, is, is your heart still fervent, passionate for the things of the Lord? Or are you allowing the things of the world to tantalize you? You and I both know, let's not, let's not pretend, our, our congregation's not perfect. We, we, you know, we, we're a sinner starting with the one standing right here behind the pulpit. But it's, it's easier to sin in other churches. You can go to other churches where you can slip in and slip out and nobody will even know whether you're there or not. And if you miss, nobody will know. Nobody will ask. Nobody will ask, have you, have you been under the preaching of God's word? Have you allowed God's spirit to speak in your life? Are, are you still handling that sin? 
You can be in churches where you will not find another person to pray for you. And you will make really good reasons for going to those other churches that sound really good to all the rest of us, that, are, that seem maybe even godly, but, they, but you know in your heart that you're allowing yourself to be a little overly wicked. You're allowing it in. You're saying, I want to be that tempted. I don't want to be hot or cold. I want to be that lukewarm Christian. You wouldn't say that out loud. You see, Jesus warns us of this as well in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 4. Write this down. You don't have to turn there. Many of us know this story. Mark chapter 4, the parable. He says, there's a sower who goes out and sows seed. The seed is the word of God. And this morning, this morning, as the word of God is going forth into this room and into the fellowship hall, there are... Hearts that are receiving this word that's being preached. And there's four different categories for these hearts. There's soils, if you will, that represent these hearts. And the word of God is being sowed in your heart this morning. And Jesus explains it this way. Mark chapter 4, verse 14. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path. The first soil is the hard path where the word is sown. And when they hear it, when you're hearing it this morning, Satan immediately comes and takes it away. The word that is sown in them. This is the person that's here this morning thinking to yourself, I wonder when lunch is. I wonder how long this guy's going to go. Is he going to cover this whole thing? Your mind is somewhere else. You're not desiring the things of God. Satan has already come and immediately snatched away the word of God. Be careful. Our days are numbered and you don't know when your last will be. So there's the seed, of, the seed being sown in the hard-packed soil of the heart. Satan immediately comes and takes it away as the birds take away the seed from the path. And these are the ones who are sown on the rocky ground. There's this second kind of soil. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. You hear the word and you're like, yes, I want to be faithful. Yes, these are things that I need to address in my life. And they take roots in themselves. But endure for a while. Only for a little while. But come Monday or Tuesday, maybe even by the time of this afternoon, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word. In other words, you're you're seeking to live out this word of God. And now something has confronted you in the world that you're in. And you're saying, am I going to live for the word of God or am I going to live for Jesus? Am I going to give my life fully to him? Or am I going to allow a little bit of wickedness to come in? I mean, won't God understand? I'm trying to be faithful here. The rocky ground, it says, then when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. The third type of soil, it says, and others are the ones sown among thorns. Listen to this. Those seed that are sown among the thorns. There are those of you here this morning that have thorny hearts. The soil of your hearts are like thorny soil. They are those who hear the word. Listen. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches... And the desire for other things. I pray that the Spirit of God right now is doing something in your heart. I pray that the Spirit of God right now is, ask, is, is pricking your heart, is, is, is pressing the in, into your heart. Are you one who has received the Word of God, but are the cares of this world, are the deceitfulness of riches and the wants for the things that, are, that riches can buy, Are the desires for other things, are they entering into your life right now to choke out the word so that it proves to be unfaithful and unfruitful?
There is a good soil. The soil that by the power of the Holy Spirit is ready to receive God's word. And by God's grace this morning will bear much fruit. Brothers and sisters, we're to be fervent. We're to go after the Lord. We're to be seeking his face. We're to be desiring him. And when hard things and injustices and difficulties and crooks happen in our lives, when nothing seems to be right, everything seems to be broken, you go to bed at night and your your heart is in sorrow. And everything in you wants to fix it. I need to be a better person. That's what needs to happen in order for me to get God to do something that makes this thing better. Or I'm just going to give myself to wickedness. It doesn't matter. It's, it's all bad anyway. I'm just going to give myself to the world and the things of the world. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Uh, excuse me. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other. That's pretty stark contrast, right? That's pretty... I mean, it's, it's not, I don't hate Jesus. I don't hate the things of the Lord. I just want him and I want my life to be easier. I want things to be better. I mean, doesn't Jesus want me to be happy? That's the American influence in your life. That's not you reading your Bible, by the way. If you have that thought, that's because you're too, you, you, you've imbibed in the American Christianity, not in the biblical Christianity. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other. He will be devoted to the one or despise the other. You cannot serve God. And the old King James says mammon. And the reason is because it actually doesn't just mean money. It actually means possessions or anything in our lives that can get in the way of God. You will not serve both. You will not serve both. You see what's happening here. Verses... Verses, um, let me turn back to our passage here in, in, in chapter 7 of, of uh, Ecclesiastes. Uh, verses uh, 16 and 17, they're basically the response to those who are trying to fix these perplexing issues of the righteous perishing and the wicked flourishing. People that look at their lives and they say, okay, what, what do I need to do? How do I need to fix it? But what does, what does this life call us to? The life that's being set forward in our text this morning is one that looks at the brevity and the vanity of life and neither, listen, neither attempts to manipulate or manage one's life through either self-righteousness nor giving oneself over to wickedness. We see this here in verse 18. Look with me. Verse 18 says, It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand. For the, one, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. It is good that we should take hold of this truth about not being a fool and giving ourselves over to sin. Nor to withhold our hand from pursuing righteousness that is before God's eyes. That the Lord calls us to. We shouldn't, be, we shouldn't remove our hand, withhold our hand from that. We should be pursuing that righteousness. The way one does this, the way one does this is by being motivated, not by the desire to fix or to make our lives better. Now, what is your sanctification motivated by? What is your desire to be Christ-like motivated by? Is it motivated by, there's really hard things in my life and I want to be more sanctified because I want my life to be better? Or is it motivated by, I need more of Christ whether I get these things removed from my life or not? When we're motivated by, when our lives are motivated by the fear of God, 
we will not go the route of either self-righteousness or giving ourselves over to wickedness. You see how clear that is? Now, this, this, this theme of fearing God is interesting. The book of Ecclesiastes um, divides up into two parts. And the hinge, if you will, the transition between the first half of Ecclesiastes and the second half of Ecclesiastes is actually in chapter 5. Turn a couple pages back if you have your Bibles open there to chapter, five, or chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. Turn to chapter 5 and look at the very beginning of the verse there. This is the transition. This is really the transition from um, Ecclesiastes 1, 2, uh, 1, 2, 3, and 4, which speaks of living our lives without any reference to God in heaven as if we're just simply living under the sun. But then in chapter 5, notice what he does. He turns now and he says, this is no longer about just living our lives under the sun with no reference to God. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, guard your steps when you do what? When you go to the house of God. Now we're starting to realize that this world that we live in isn't just a, 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 an earth, a planet, material things, but there's a God in heaven. We need to guard ourselves when we go to the house of God. To draw near, to listen is better than to sacrifice the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be rash in your mouth, and let your heart be hasty when you utter a word before God, and when you come before the Lord in prayer. And this ends, this section ends here in verse 7 at the very end. Notice what it says. But God, but God, as you go into the house of the Lord, as you pray, as you make your oaths to him, God is the one you must fear. This is where this book transitions. And then here we see the importance of fearing God in order to live wisely. And then in chapter 8, the very next chapter in Ecclesiastes, we see in verses 12 and 13, notice what it says about the fear of God. Chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, it says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who what? Who fear God. Because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. Because he does not fear before God. Now, how can that be? We just saw... Just a chapter earlier, in chapter 7, where we're at, it says that the, the righteous are perishing. The wicked are prolonging their days. And here, here, chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, he says, And yet it's not worth it because the wicked don't fear the Lord, and it is worth it for the righteous because they do fear the Lord. We're going to find out why in just a moment. And then obviously the end of the book, if you turn all the way to the end of chapter 12 of, of Ecclesiastes, the very last verses there, verses 13 and 14, it says, The end of the matter, he's saying, after all of these perplexing things that I've talked about in chapters 1 through 12 in the book of Ecclesiastes, all these difficulties and struggles, he says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fearing God. Those who live before the face of God will not have this superficial self-righteousness as if I've got to be more righteous than those who are sitting around me. Why? Because you're standing before God. You're fearing Him. He is the one that is the one you're accountable to. And when you fear God, you will not pursue wickedness because you know it's a very violation and rebellion against Him. Loving the things of the world, pursuing the things that the world pursues, loving those things, treasuring those things, diving into those, drinking of that dirty fountain of the world will never please him if we live in fear of our Lord. So now he turns, if you will, in chapter 7. And we turn and we turn from the perplexities of life. And what I want us to notice, verses 19 through 24, the problem with wisdom. 
the problem with wisdom. We see this in verses 19 through 24. First, we see in verses 19 through 22 this need for wisdom. This life motivated by this fear of God necessarily turns one to consider again the importance of wisdom. Wisdom, brothers and sisters, will be required if we are to walk faithfully on this path that God's called us to. If we're to walk faithfully on this path, both avoiding the ditches of both moral legalism, being too righteous on one side, as well as staying on the path and not getting into the ditch on the other side of moral indifference, being too wicked. Notice verse 19, if you will. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. The point of this text is that wisdom accompanied with the fear of God is more valuable, more valuable than you can ever know. It doesn't matter how much intellect and planning and ingenuity and strength and leveraging and money and things that you have, none of those can fix most of our problems that we have in our lives. Because we've thrown all those things at it. We try to fix our lives with those things that we have that are tangible, and we've only come to realize that at the end of the day, those things can't fix those. Those heart issues, the crookedness that's in this world that God has placed there. How valuable is wisdom? It says here, wisdom gives strength to the wise man, to the individual wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Now, this may sound odd to us, but ten rulers in a city is a blessing. It's, it's a blessing for a city to have one ruler to govern over it. Every ruler of, of, a, of a people is a blessing from God that God has given to them. But if the Lord blesses with a ruler for a people, then how much more abundantly and lavish is he blessing a people if God sees fit to place a number, even ten rulers, over a particular city? We know that this is a good gift all over the book of Proverbs. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 15, 22, Without counsel, plans fail. But with, with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 24, 6, For by wise guidance, you can wage your war. And in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. And yet, so many of us are going through the difficulties and struggles in our lives, never once to allow the brothers and sisters that are sitting around you to enter into that and to pray for you and to encourage you and to even say hard things to you so that you can be more and more able to trust in Christ. Wisdom does make things profoundly better. These abundant counselors show that wisdom is good. It is better to have one man that is wise. It is just as good to have one man that is wise than as it is to have ten counselors, an abundance of counselors in this one city. But there's a problem. There's a problem with that one wise man. There's a problem with those ten counselors in the city. And here's the problem, verse 20. And we cannot forget this problem, and we often do. We often placate and forget just how grievous and wretched and horrid 
and broken and rebellious our hearts are and the hearts of those who are sitting around you. It surprises us when people sin against us. Why? Why is that? This universal truth is so crucial that we must never forget it. Don't let this truth get out of your sight when you're seeking wisdom, when you're seeking God's will. Never forget, I'm a sinner, and those that I'm trying to minister to or love or to help or to encourage, they too are sinners. We forget that, or we diminish it, or we uh, set it aside as if it's not important. It is central. Make a point as you live in this world and see the injustices and crookedness of the nature of this world. Everything around you, as well as that which is in your own heart, there is not a righteous man on earth. Do you see our passage here in verse 20? Surely there is not a righteous man on earth. Remember that. Remember that when you're trying to love your spouse. Remember that when you're trying to encourage a brother or sister in Christ. Remember that when that brother and sister in Christ is trying to encourage you. Remember that when you're trying to disciple your children. There is not a man on earth that is righteous. Not one. We heard it this morning in Romans chapter 3, the quintessential chapter on just how unrighteous we are. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, not even you, not even me. This unrighteousness is both in regard to one's sins of omission... There is no one who does good, as well as one sins of commission and never sins. Do you see that there? There is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now, let's, let's, let's get an example here. Are, are, are you convinced of that? Maybe you are, but maybe you aren't. So let's look at an example, an acute, common example of how unrighteous we really are. And this is in verses 21 and 22. Our hearts, sadly, so sadly, are absolutely fixed on what people say about us and what others think about us. This is an indicator. This is a thermometer, really. It's, it's really a gauge to how much we fear God. We need to ask ourselves, are we fearing man are we fearing God? Are we concerned about what man says about us or what our neighbors or friends or colleagues or people that are around us, are we concerned about what they think and say? Or are we concerned about what God thinks and what God says? It's a good gauge for us. But notice this example in verse 21. Our hearts are so attached to what people say to us and when they say nice things today, we are on cloud nine. Everything's great. But we're foolish because tomorrow they'll say something wretched and horrible. And it's because we're wretched and horrible. That most, most of our friends and loved ones, they actually don't say, they, they, they don't get it clear enough about how hard hearts we have and how desperate we are and how wicked we are. One day they'll praise us and another day that same person will curse us. All of us will allow our lives to go on that. You will let your days simmer. I wonder what that person said. Why didn't they call me? I texted them two days ago and they haven't responded back. That, that's just Satan. I, I wish it would all, uh, it's just, it's amazing 
how we begin making things up in our head, and, you, and, and, this, and this is modern culture here. I can make something up in my head, and I can believe it, and because I believe it enough, that makes it true. That's a lie. It doesn't make it true. It makes it in your head is what it makes it, right? What is true is when you go to God's Word, and then you ask an abundance of counselors that have the Spirit of God in them to come around you and speak into your life by God's word and say, can you, can you gauge this for me? Because I'm standing here looking around and I'm not sure if I can see things well. Can you give me, would you as an abundance of counselors by God's spirit speak into my life and help me see God's word so that I can see things rightly? That's when we begin seeing things rightly. Not when we just simply get a passing praise from people. All of us will confirm the unrighteousness that is done All of us have felt the sting of that person who said something. Sometimes carelessly, they spoke a word that hurt us. And there are people here this morning who are carrying what somebody said about them years ago. And you're still carrying it with you, right? That's a poison that's killing you. That's not harming them. That's a poison that's killing you because you think you, think you, you have that authority to make that judgment. There can be somebody who said something careless to you that shakes your world worse, maybe worse. There's somebody who wasn't careless but very direct. And they meant what they said when they said what they said. And it hurt. And they might have rebuked us. They might have come at us as a friend and try to say hard things or maybe they even said it out of anger and said it wrongly and didn't say what was right or good or true how can we live in such a volatile world if every person that we're around has the ability to pull on our strings it's because we fear them more than we fear God it is important for us to realize brothers and sisters as we think about how harmful it's been how hard how much it hurt when we were spoken against I want us to realize what our text is saying. To the degree that we realize how harmful that is, we need to also realize that we have not only been the recipients of this kind of unrighteousness, we've been the source of this same kind of unrighteousness. Because our passage says, look with me if you will, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So don't don't rise up as if I can't believe you're saying these ugly things about me. James in chapter, James, the Apostle James in chapter 3, verse 2, James chapter 3, verse 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Any perfect men or women here today? Able also to bridle his own body. In other words, don't be so offended and put out by the unrighteousness of those around you because your heart has the same unrighteousness as well as mine. Let's realize that this unrighteousness will undo us. It will kill us. It will drive discord and disunity and horror and hardship and injustice and ugliness and pain and sorrow into our lives if we allow this unrighteousness to continue, to fester. This is why wisdom is so important. Wisdom is so important because Wisdom helps us understand these things. 
Wisdom from God's Word helps us understand, understand these things. It helps us understand that we are unrighteous and we need the Lord. And that not only are we unrighteous, but those around us are also unrighteous. And we can understand that. But here's the problem with wisdom. Here's the problem with wisdom. Look with me at verses 23 and 24. As much as we need wisdom, as much as, as it is so important and so necessary for us to have wisdom, verse 23 and 24 say, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? No matter how determined Solomon was to be wise, it was elusive to him. And brothers and sisters, no matter how hard we try to be wise in our own doing and our own desires, it is elusive to us. Why? Because there is not one of you here that is righteous. It's not one of you here that can figure it out. That's been given sole authority to dictate and determine all things around you and to be able to make right judgments. None of us are able to do that. Wisdom that is given to us by observing those that are around us, we will get it wrong almost every single time. The real pressing questions in life are not answered by these earthly observations that we have. The wisdom that comes from the world will not answer the question, how can we live in this world that's so full of sorrow? Ecclesiastes 1.17 says, Solomon says, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also was but a striving after wind. He says, I went after folly and wisdom and madness and all these other things, and I found that none of it was beneficial. It never moved me forward one bit. How can we live in a world where death is inevitable? We live a vapor-like, vain life. How do we live in this world and cope with the fact that it's all broken and there's injustice and, and, and even with that, it's very short. It passes like a puff of smoke. Ecclesiastes 2.15, Solomon says, Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. We all have answers, quote unquote, to the questions in our lives. We've all made amends. The reason I know that is because you got out of bed this morning and came here. You're not racked with fear and, and anger and cynicism and concern. You got up and came here this morning, so you've, you've made some kind of amends with all this brokenness that's evident and obvious in our world. Every tangible, earnest effort that we've made to reflect on our ambitions and our abilities that we've given to, coming closer to what all of us know in our own hearts, and this is what we all know, we all know that our desire is for a joy that's eternal. Isn't there something in all of us that says, that's got to be somewhere, but I have not seen it yet. Isn't that in all of us? There's a hope that is infinite. And yet I've never been able to even get close enough to put my fingers on that. Our souls desperately long for these things. We're not just blood and bones and flesh. We're not just a material in our world. There is a God in heaven. We have a heart that wants an eternal joy, an infinite hope. Why is that? Do we then, do we then knowing that that's there, 
and not even having the ability of any way to be able to grasp that or get close to it or understand it in any way, no matter how much wisdom we apply to it, according to this, wisdom is so elusive. If that is true, then are we then left to do simply this, to throw up our hands and say, this is the best there is? We confess our hearts understand this so very little the world and how it works, the suffering and the sorrow that's all around us, the unrighteousness that we find in our own hearts, all of these things and more. Wisdom is required, understanding is given, and yet we have to say what it says here in verse 24, that which has been is far off. In other words, it's, it's not even remotely close as I've pursued these things. It's deep. It's very deep. Who can find out? Who can find it out? I want to turn now back to Psalm 73. Take your Bibles and turn back to Psalm 73. The book of Ecclesiastes teaches us how to live under the world. Solomon asked the questions that many of us are scared to say out loud. And he, and, he, and he tells us, hey, the world's like this. The righteous die young. The wicked live flourishing lives. And this is how I see it. And we say, yeah, man, as much as I would like to just close my eyes and pretend that isn't true, that is true. So are, are the wicked flourishing? Is the righteous just going to slog through life and then die just like the wicked? Look with me at Psalm 73. We looked at the beginning of the psalm and it talked about how the psalmist was, was envious of, of, of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he goes through and he talks about how, how just un, unscathed they were by the world. They just drank of this fountain of the world and had all these wonderful things. And he says his heart was saying, man, if I can only have some of that, but I'm one who's trying to live my life. So verse 14, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning when I come before God and realize my wickedness before Him. Verses 16 and 17, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. You see, there's a wisdom that comes from the Word of God and by His Spirit that causes us to look outside of the things of this world. And he says when he comes to the sanctuary of God, when he comes before the Lord, he realizes, wait a minute, wait a minute. That stuff that's being preached to me out in the world, that the, the world and the things of the world are good, that's not true. We can discern God's end when we come in here on Lord's Day and we hear Christ set before us. Drop down for me in ch chapter 73 of Psalm, Psalm 73, verse 25. He ends this way. Whom have I in heaven but you? You see what's happening here? It says in verse 24, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me in glory. So the psalmist now is saying, Wait a minute, it's not all about what just happens here on earth. And my life here and now. He goes on, he goes, Whom have I in heaven but you? And notice verse 25, the second phrase, And there is nothing... There is nothing that the wicked can have here on earth. I added that. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In other words, 
no matter how much the wicked drink of the things of this world, they're not getting the deep, joyous, eternal, infinite pleasure that is our God who's the giver of all these gifts. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. I may live my life racked with pain and struggle and difficulty, but God is my strength and my heart and my portion forever. He's the one that I'm after. He's the one that I'm desiring. And if, if this, this, this crookedness, of this hardship, of this difficulty casts me more firmly upon my Savior, then kiss, kiss the face of the difficulty. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish and put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, look at verse 28. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Do we just give up and say, the world is difficult, injustice is all around us, we either give ourselves to diligence and devotion or we give ourselves to wickedness? No. All of these things find their end, brothers and sisters. How do, we, how do we see, how do we cherish, how do we appropriate, how do we receive this God who is our portion? All of this finds its fulfillment in none other than Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, Jesus Christ is our wisdom. He is the one that is, that is, uh, he is deep, very deep. He's the one that is far off that says, by faith you can, I will draw you near and I will know you. The church, the congregation in Colossae, was being drawn away by worldly knowledge and human wisdom. And Paul's answer to them was this. Listen, they were being drawn away by all these philosophies and all these ideas. They, they were constantly being going here to get this answer, going there to get that answer. They were, they were looking at all the things in the world and saying, can't we have the world and the philosophies of the world and the way the world thinks about things and Jesus? Can't we have both of those? Can't we live with both of those in one hand, one in one hand and one in the other? And Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God. What is the knowledge of God? Which is Christ, in whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.6 Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, listen to this, church, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. In this crooked and perverse generation that we live in, walk in Him. Rooted and built up in Him. And established in the faith, just as you were taught. Abound in thanksgiving. That's hard. But if we're receiving Christ, if we're walking in Him, if we're rooted and built up in Him, if we're established in Him, we can... We can Abound in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, for in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. So do you see, 
when we look at the world and its injustice, we see the righteous that are struggling, we see the wicked that seem to be flourishing, it is right. Our view that there's injustice there is not correct. God is making all things come under the headship of Jesus Christ. And we are called to lavish, to pursue, to go after, to give all of our hearts that we may find lordship in Jesus Christ the sweetest thing ever. We can say like the psalmist, there's nothing in heaven that I have besides you. There's nothing on earth that I would rather have than Christ. And through the hardships and difficulties of the righteous, we cling to Christ more. Amen and amen. As the wicked continue to feed on the earth, feed on the world, and feed on the things of the world, there may be a wicked man that lives a hundred years old, and he'll never find satisfaction in the things of this world. Don't let the world convince you of that. For it is only in Christ that we will find the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let us pray together.